invite you again to open God's Word in Acts chapter 11 as we consider this last portion of chapter 11. We, we have as a theme, um, because of finding in the text these, these two phrases, the hand of the Lord and the grace of God. First in verse 21, it is Luke as he's narrating what he sees. He says in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. He, he sees what's happening and he attributes it not, not to the zeal of the evangelists, not to the wisdom of men, not to any kind of persuasion that would come from, from Barnabas or Saul, but to the hand of the Lord. And then when Barnabas arrives in Antioch in verse 23, we read, Who... When he came and had seen, the grace of God was glad. And so he sees the work in Antioch and what is happening there, and he calls it the grace of God. Luke, of course, calls it the grace of God as, as Barnabas is observing what is happening. Um, um, let that sink into your heart, the thought that he, he sees the work of God in the church, the believers, and he calls that the grace of God. That, that would be um, also Luke could look at the church today, our, our very congregation, and he would call it, this is the grace of God. And, and grammatically speaking, this is a synonym for the church, for what God is doing in the church. The, the reality of, of people coming in and out and, and listening to the word of God and our training our children to love the Lord and to come here and to sing to his praises and to exalt his name. That is the grace of God. Um, we're not just going to church. We're not just being the church. It is the grace of God. And that is what our text is bringing to, to our concept. So even though we're going to be seeing that little moment in the history of the church, don't let this be just a, a history lesson, but that it would be um, very practical because we are part of this very ongoing body of believers that the Lord keeps on expanding and keeps on growing through the ages ever since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the grace of God. The, the hand of the Lord is with us. This is what we extract from these passages. And this is what we've been seeing. This is a summary, as it were, of all these chapters in the book of Acts. It is, it is the story of the spread of the gospel after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. It's the beginning of the history of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It began in Jerusalem in that day of Pentecost when Peter began to proclaim the word and explain why all of the disciples were speaking in different tongues. Remember, there were people from all different places in the surrounding area of Israel, Jews who, who had in the diaspora gone to all different places. They would reunite in Israel because of Passover. And so it was a wonderful event to have a sermon for all these people there was that miraculous account where they were speaking different languages. It attracted the interest and the curiosity of the masses. Peter preached a sermon. 3,000 people were baptized. They repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then remember, Peter preached another sermon. There were more people who believed. And later, um, there were... Um, arrests. The apostles were arrested twice. First, it was John and Peter. And then later, it was all of the apostles. They, they were released. The church kept growing. There were struggles inside um, where, remember, Sapphira and Ananias, they lied about the amount of money they were giving. And then we, we saw the sad account how the widows of the Hellenists, those were the Jews from the different distant places that were Greek-speaking Jews, their widows were being neglected. And so they had to appoint men to, to help with that. That's where we heard of Stephen. And then we see Stephen preaching that, that astonishing sermon in his arrest, in his defense, and it ends up in his execution. Remember, that began that great um, persecution that was global. Believers fled. They went to Samaria. 
And the reason I'm summarizing all of this is the text comes to us where we are put back to that very moment. Um, as believers fled to Samaria, and we saw all that happened there with, with Philip preaching and a lot of people in Samaria believing, notice in verse 19 that what we have here is like a three-dimensional reality. It's showing us that simultaneously these things were happening. In verse 19 we read, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen... See, it brings us to that very episode of Stephen's execution and the dispersion. So there were people that traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And so, beloved, this is what we have here. We, we are made to go back in time and realize that when Philip went with those believers to Samaria and all of that went on, well, this also went on. There were believers who went in a different direction or further um, um, Cyprus would be that island that is south of Turkey. Cyrene is, well, um, Phoenicia would be on the coast to the west of Jerusalem. And Antioch is north of Jerusalem. It's pretty much in the area where this earthquake hit between Syria and Turkey. And that's where Antioch is. And then notice that um, as these are preaching in verse 20, it singles out one more district. And some of them were men of Cyprus, that island, and Cyrene. Now, Cyrene, when you read the text, you think that must be somewhere in that area, but it isn't. Cyrene is in the north of Africa. It is in in the very coast of today's um, Libya. And so there were believers who had gone there, and now these, these, of course, would have probably have been people who went for Passover to Jerusalem. They're converted in Jerusalem. We don't know if they went back to Cyrene yet, but here they are in Antioch ministering. And so there are believers all over the place. And it was thanks to that persecution that made them all spread out. And so our minds go back to the day where Stephen was stoned and people went to Samaria. People now go to these places. And we have seen other things that have happened. The salvation of Saul. And then of lately we saw the salvation of Cornelius and his household. And we've learned now that not only is it that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well, but the Gentiles and the Jews are to be seen as one. Their standing is identical. Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles are all one as a body of Christ. There are no degrees among us. There are no different churches that are to see each other as if one is inferior to the other. No. There is a oneness. There is a unity. And we see some of this here. Those first missionaries went and they preached to the Jews only. But then in verse 20, we hear of men from Cyprus and from Cyrene. And it says, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, that word Grecians could refer to Jews of those Greek locations, but there are many who agree that this is also applying to Gentiles themselves. Calvin is one who believes that because there's, there is, as it were in the text, a contrast. The first group were preaching to the Jews only. The second are preaching also to the Gentiles. At any rate, we know for sure that by now, Gentiles are being preached and proclaimed and being received in the bosom of the church as brothers and sisters in Christ with the same standing. And, and that is happening. So today's sermon, we're going to see, first of all, the, the, the ministry of the church as, as we enter now this area. And we'll look at the narrative that we have read um, under this first point, the ministry of the church. But then we'll see the focus of the members of the church. Um, the text has many anonymous members that we, have, we don't have their names, and they seem like they were doing so much. But then we have a few names singled out, and we'll look at those names like Barnabas and, and this prophet Agabus. And then our third point is the Lord of the church, where we, we go back to these phrases, the, the hand of the Lord and the grace of God as as a summary of of what was happening then and also of what is happening today. It is the grace of God that is at work. It is the hand of the Lord. And this is what we pray for, what we yearn 
to see. So we already saw that the time in essence is around the same time that believers were going to Samaria. They were going to this area as well. And you notice that as, as we hear of these places that they go, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, Luke, he could say what was happening in Cyprus and give details there. He could say what was happening in Phoenicia and give details there. But of course, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to focus on Antioch and what was going there. It's not hard to see why he would have done that um, at, a, at an earthly level. Um, it is important to note that Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was first, and then Alexandria, north of Egypt, and Antioch, north of Jerusalem. And in today's border between Antioch, uh, not really border, but right there on the very east of Turkey, close to Syria. It was the third largest city. There were around half a million people or more. And that, of course, became the city that you could say became the church that was the church home of Barnabas and Paul, their base for all the missionary journeys. As much as they had contact with Jerusalem, Antioch became their sending church to all the places that they went. So Antioch becomes now a, a very focal church. It has been Jerusalem in our in our narrative, and now it will be Antioch. So it, it would be understandable why God would want the focus to be Antioch. Um, happen, things were happening in all these cities. There would be many stories to be told. We don't have all those narratives, but we, we have a few singled out, and Antioch is, is one of them in what happens there. And, and notice this, this one detail that is, that is such a blessing. Um, if you have your Bibles open and you want and you're able to, to just go back to Acts chapter 2, that's where we read the narrative of the Passover. And you'll remember that there's that list in verse 9. It begins a list of the different peoples who were present at Passover. It gives you an idea of how the Jewish people had dispersed throughout the Greek-speaking world and even other languages. Um, in verse 9 it says, Who were there at Passover? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, which would be north of Antioch, and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in parts of Libya about Cyrene, and in strangers of Rome and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Cretes, which was an island, of course, further even west than Cyprus, and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So those were the people who were present at Passover. And now we read of men from Cyprus and Cyrene um, and um, Antioch going to all these different places. And then if you go to chapter um, 6, remember I'm just going to read verse 9 that brings the list of those men of the synagogues who were more at odds with, with Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 9, we read, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, which would be that north of Libya today, and Alexandrians, that's north of Egypt, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And so what we see here, um, the ministry of the church, is that those very people who were part of those who were at Passover and then heard the gospel, some may have been converted later, some probably not until much later. Maybe they were involved in Stephen's stoning. But now we find men from these places, Cyprus, um, Cyrene, and they are preaching the gospel. They are the evangelists. They are the ones who are promoting the word of Christ. And so this is where we see the, the hand of the Lord. 
We see elements of the mechanics of the church, of how, how the church was functioning. Um, notice what we found in the text. At Jerusalem, they heard what was happening in Antioch. They want to be a part of what's there. They want to oversee what's happening. So they send Barnabas. And Barnabas goes as a representative of the apostles. He arrives there. He assesses the matter. He, he's the one who, who sees it as the grace of God. He was glad and, and exhorted them all um, with purpose of heart that they would cleave unto the Lord. We'll, we'll look at this phrase in our, in our second point. But as he's there, he, he realizes he needs help. It seems like there were so many people to minister to, he wanted one more pastor. And so he goes to Tarsus where he knows he would find Saul. And he seeks after Saul and brings him. And now he and Saul co-shepherd the flock. And it says that for a whole year, they assembled together with the church and taught much people. And, and interesting to note, they didn't get together and said, okay, now that we're together, let's go to our missionary journey. No, they, they stayed for a whole year. It shows the importance of the foundation that they had to lay in that very young church that needed to learn, that needed to grow. And so they're together ministering. And as we're reading the text, we, we read all of a sudden of this Agabus who shows up. And he's, he's not alone. Um, in verse 27, it says that in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. So we have these other members of the church called prophets. And Agabus is one of them. And he um, foresees that there will be a famine. And so the church realizes we, we need to do something about it. We need to prepare. And again, in our second point, we will look at this preparation as we consider Agabus himself as a member of the church and how God is using him. But then, a last note here as we look at the ministry of the church is the reality that it was in, in, um, in Antioch that the believers were called Christians first. And it wasn't that they were called Christians um, by themselves. It says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Um, many commentators agree that this is in reference to what other people were calling the believers. The believers so far, the, the names that we've been seeing is that they're called disciples. They're called, of course, believers. They're called saints. They're called brethren. But now they're being called Christians. And there is, of course, something very precious in that title because now it's, it's the closest title to their very Savior and their very Lord. It seems like they, they were so much about Christ. Their message was about Jesus. Their life was like Jesus. So they were being called Christians. Now, there are two things that are connected to that name, um, Christians. It's, it's not just that it's a title they get. There, there are two things connected to it. That they were followers of Jesus and also that they were those who belonged to Jesus. When, when you look at that ending, eons of Christians, it is not just the idea of someone who's following someone, but who belongs to that someone. There is a claim from that someone upon those who are following and when you stop to think, you, have, you analyze this in a, in a, in a somewhat philosophical way, um, a Christian is the only one, who, if he's a true Christian, really has been given a proper name as a group of people. And this is what I mean. Um, followers of Plato were called Platonists. Followers of Mohammed have been in history called Mohammedans. Followers of Buddha have been called Buddhists. And in receiving those names, yes, it's true that they follow the teachings, but they no longer follow the people because those leaders are dead. So it's not an active following of, of a master of, or of a lord. Nor can it be said that they belong to these 
because they are no longer alive. And even when they were alive, they would never have an authority to have these followers as their own. Only Jesus can be followed still because he's alive. And only Jesus can you be belonging to because he purchased you with his blood on the cross. And so when you think of the name Christian, there's in every sense a proper reality to it. Because a Christian truly follows Jesus. And as Jesus guides, you follow him. And as he teaches in the word in a lively way, you follow him. We're not following a dead leader. We're following a living one who's ruling from heaven and through the spirit in our hearts. And we truly belong to him. Because we've been purchased by Him. We've been forgiven and pardoned. And we are His. And we want to be His. And we are His servants. So Calvin says this about this title. This was therefore a most excellent honor for the city of Antioch that Christ brought forth His name thence like a standard whereby it might be made known to all the world that there was some people whose captain was Christ and which did glory in His name. And out of every other names, um, there's no greater name to be one and no one safer to belong to and to follow. And so this of the, of the ministry of the church, just thinking of the narrative and then thinking of the name that the Christians received. But then let's look at the members of the church. And we'll look at three primarily. The first is really looking globally. It's, it's looking at many. Um, looking at the anonymous members. And notice this in, in verse 19. It says, now they, we don't know how many these were, but it certainly wasn't just two or three because see, it, they were scattered abroad upon the persecution. You can imagine if there were now in Jerusalem thousands of believers from all of those conversions, those who are scattered from Jerusalem, it's, it's not just even a handful. You, you imagine here people in the hundreds maybe, or groups of 20 or 30 in one direction and another. They which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So they're all dispersing in these areas, preaching the word to none but unto Jews only. And we, we need to stop and realize this again. When we find believers... Stop to consider, beloved, how, how astonishing this is. These are people being scattered because of persecution. They're not being properly sent with everything settled, with expenses paid, with plans made to be missionaries in these places. They're exiles. And while they are, they explain to the people where they arrive where they're coming from and why. And people hear their story and hear their message. And certainly not every single one, but many of those people were believing. And then verse 20 says, and some of them. So see, it's this very group of people, but they, they are now in a, in a focus. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. See, Cyrene wasn't even in the top group, but now we have men from Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. So there are some who are focusing on the Jews, and among those some, there are some saying, we're going to go to the Grecians as well, to Jews who are from the Greek-speaking places, and very likely to the Gentiles who were round about them as well. And they're just evangelizing. They're bearing the message of the gospel. We, we do not know their names. We will never know their names here on earth. But they are the founders of the church in Antioch. It's not Barnabas and it's not Saul. And, and this should be an encouragement, beloved, because you know you might have a hard thinking, I'm, I'm never going to be a, a Calvin. I'm never going to be a, a Matthew Henry. I'm never going to be a, a William Carey. But it doesn't matter. God uses... Everyone in his kingdom. He uses everyone. We will never know the names of everyone he used on, on this side of heaven. So those are the first members that we find in our text. But then we find one member whose name is given, Barnabas. 
We find him being selected by, by Jerusalem to go be an emissary, to go be um, like a delegate. Jerusalem wants to find out what's going on in Antioch, um, probably hoping he'll send a report either by letter or, or coming in person. And he goes as, as, a, as a representative. Remember, the word Barnabas means son of encouragement. Um, that was a title that was given him, certainly because of how astonishingly encouraging this man was. Now, just to recapitulate, remember, we first heard of him back in those days where, where people were selling their properties and giving it to the apostles because there were so many people in the church. Many were needy, and they needed funds. And Barnabas was an example of one who sold a piece of property. He put it at the feet of the apostles to be used. That was just what we read there. So obviously we see his generosity. We see his love. And then we find him in Jerusalem when Saul is there and people are scared of him because he had been that great, ferocious persecutor. It's Barnabas who takes him and who speaks for him. He, he had been, Barnabas had been in Damascus and seen that Saul had to flee for his life and preach the gospel there. So Barnabas is a witness that this man is not pretending. He is not a spy of the Sanhedrin. He's genuine. So he goes to the apostles and he vouchsafes for Saul. You see there again the encouraging heart this man has. He was, he was saying, I, I will speak for him. We can trust him. We don't have to worry. But then we see um, his encouragement in the text. When, when we see in verse 23 that he goes and he sees the grace of God, notice in verse 23 it says that he was glad and he exhorted them all. The word exhorted is even kind of where he gets his name because the word exhortation is also the concept of comforting. And he was a, a son of consolation, of comfort. Well, this was the exhortation he gave that they with purpose of heart would cleave unto the Lord. And beloved, as we, as we see this exhortation Barnabas gave to Antioch, you understand this is an exhortation that the Lord Jesus gives to you and to me today. This is an exhortation for the church of all ages that we would, with purpose of heart, cleave unto the Lord. Let's look at that phrase, that it would be an encouragement to, to you, to my heart as well, an exhortation um, from the text to... to to us, there are two things here with purpose of heart to cleave unto the heart, to, to the Lord, to cleave unto the Lord. Um, first, we have the concept of cleaving. Um, they had turned to the Lord, now they're being exhorted to cleave to the Lord. Um, we must come to the Lord and stay with the Lord in His ways and in His paths. So if you go back to verse 21, it talks about the people believing. It said they believed and turned unto the Lord. So they went to the Lord. And now Barnabas is saying, now that you have turned to the Lord, now cleave to the Lord. Stay with Him. Don't leave. Don't, don't go in a different direction. Cleave to the Lord. And do that with a purpose of heart. This, this is the whole concept that involves, and remember, when when. Even in the New Testament, which is in Greek, it speaks of heart. It is really the Jewish way of thinking of the heart that is from the Old Testament. And the heart never is the seat of emotions alone. It involves that, but it's really the seat, the seat of the heart is actually the mind and the thoughts and the decisions and the will. It's everything together. So it is to say, to cleave to the Lord with a steadfast purpose, with devotion, with all their hearts, with all their being, something that they're doing knowingly and thoughtfully and using their reason, using their minds. And Matthew Henry says this um, about this encouragement. Not, it is not to fall off from following Him, not to flag and tire in following Him. To the flag is to, to get tired. To cleave to the Lord Jesus is to live a life of dependence upon Him and devotedness to Him. Not only to hold Him fast, but to hold fast by Him. To be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. 
In short, if you put together what we read this morning, it is to truly believe that the Lord is our help and our shield and then cleave to Him as our help and our shield. To trust that and to not let Him go. Now, perhaps the greatest encouragement that he brought to this group of believers wasn't just this this exhortation that he brought, but what happens here in in verse 24, it says still this about his character. He was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added to the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Beloved, you have to think of what this means. This man's heart was so intent upon Antioch's blessing and and comfort that he realized that it needed more than just him. And here you see Barnabas' humility. You see Barnabas' sacrifice. He came with the authority of the apostles. You could think, humanly speaking, how he could say, this will be my church and I will be the senior pastor. No, he got there and he realized, I need help. And this church needs Saul. And he knew something already of the zeal of that man. And beloved, Barnabas didn't know all the details that you and I know. Saul, who became Paul, literally is said to be the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher that the Christian church has ever had. And this was the present, this was the gift that Barnabas was going to Tarsus to bring to Antioch. Um, What a blessing to think of this, that, that Barnabas was this loving to this people, perhaps, of course, not knowing everything, but very likely if he was filled with the Spirit, it was the Spirit's guidance and giving him wisdom to think, I should do this. And he was sensitive to the proddings of the Spirit, and he went. And he literally brought to that city, to that church, the best pastor the world has ever known. I've never read a commentary that really singles anyone else um, and, and compares him with Paul to say he's greater or more used of the Lord. No, Saul. And of course, there's no competition when you're used to, to pretty much pen most of the New Testament. That's who Paul was. And he came. And then for a whole year, Barnabas and Paul were preaching um, together. It must have been a, a wonderful ministry to have Barnabas and Saul as your pastor. Um, Antioch grew and it was greatly blessed. And we will get to the chapter where we see the Spirit telling the elders of Antioch, set apart Barnabas and Saul, and they go on their first missionary journey. So amazing things are about to happen. And it starts with Barnabas thinking, let me go call Tarsus. Now, here we need to realize this one thing. There has to be this reality. Because we're speaking of humans. Barnabas was human. He was sacrificially doing this. And we know what happens. Paul comes and he becomes the limelight. And Barnabas, we don't hear of him anymore after the first missionary journey. And what you gather is that Barnabas couldn't care less. He didn't do this to exalt him. He did this. He he understood Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. He wanted to do this for God's glory. John Calvin singles this out. And he says, We see how, forgetting himself, he respected nothing but that Christ may be chief. How he sets before his eyes the edifying of the church alone. How he is content with the prosperous success of the gospel. He was like a John the Baptist saying, I I must decrease and Christ must increase and this church needs another pastor alongside with me. And so they stay there for a year. And then before we go to our third point, one more member of the church. We saw those anonymous members. We don't know their names, but they were the first evangelists. We saw Barnabas, a little bit of Saul, We don't even single him out so much. The text only mentions he joined um, Barnabas here. Later, we'll read a lot about Saul, who becomes and is then further in the future called Paul. But there's another man singled out among others. In verse 27, we read of these prophets. Again, there's some that we don't know their names, but we read of Agabus. 
He's a, a member of the church. And, and I want to single him out because we, we have here um, a rare um, event where a prophet in the New Testament is being used. And we see their ministry. Um, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we read the importance of, of the prophets. We read in Ephesians 2.20... Um, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the prophets were, were right alongside the apostles, even as foundation of the church. And this is one of the things they did. This Agabus came. He um, signified by the Spirit in verse 28 that there should be great dearth. That would be a great famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, um, there were many famines that were reported in those days. There's a historian, Suetonius, who reports that. Josephus um, also reports some famines in those very days. And Agabus is, is predicting something that will happen. And we find here... An astonishing thing. Think, think of yourself, beloved. Think of the reality that we have lived um, with, with COVID. We, we saw what was happening and we realized, okay, we needed to prepare. The church is there saying, okay, there will be a famine. We need to prepare. But this is how they prepared. In verse 29, it says, In the disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. That's how they prepared. They probably prepared for their own relief. But the text doesn't even single that out. Their heart was with the Christians in Judea. This could be that they, they were wealthier people and the believers in Judea were more needy, maybe more numerous. It could be that they understood that the famine would be greater then than it would be in their home. But no, it did say, see, that it would be a worldwide in, in the Roman Empire. But even as, of course, they must have provided for themselves, what the text singles out is their heart for the other believers. Now, this is the perspective that we need to have that is so precious and beautiful, and it goes with what we've been seeing, that salvation is for the Jews and Gentiles, and there's no hierarchy. They are one. Well, the salvation came for the Jews. The Jews have caught the understanding that they need to preach the gospel everywhere. So the gospel have come to the, Jew, the Gentiles too. And now the Gentiles receive a prophet that says that there will be a famine. There will be brothers in the south. And they're mainly Jews. And they will be in need. So these Gentiles who are at the same level as those believing Jews, they send relief to them. And so you see this precious reality that this unity is really happening. Even as you see this, the apostles sent Barnabas as an emissary to Antioch. And now Antioch is, is a year long in teaching with Saul and Barnabas. And when they understand that there will be a need in Judea, they singled out Barnabas, now with Saul, and they are emissaries to the south. And so Barnabas is going back and forth. He is representing Jerusalem, and now he is representing Antioch. He represented Jerusalem to Antioch. Now he will represent Antioch to Judea. And Jerusalem is the capital. And so you see what the, the members of the church of Christ are doing. Now this, this leads us to our third and last point. The Lord of the church. See, beloved, we can only explain this in these terms. This was not that these Gentile people are resolving to be nice to the Jews because the Jews were nice to them. And it, it is not what was happening there, a political system to bring social justice to bear and they're enacting these laws of equality. There's nothing of the sort. There's no law for equality. There's no law for e things being met just right. No, it is completely out of a heart of giving that is coming from heaven to their souls. They truly see each other as brothers and sisters. They hated each other before. The Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. Gentiles turned the favor and had nothing to do with them. 
We saw how the Spirit had to send that vision to Peter three times with those animals that would be things that Peter would have nothing to do with because of the codes of law. And God saying, kill and eat, kill and eat. And then God says, what I have considered clean, do not consider unclean. And Peter finally understood and entered the house of whom he would consider unclean in prior hours even. And when he sees the Spirit come upon the Gentiles, he realizes God is bringing us together. And we see this togetherness. The Gentiles now hear of a famine. They sent money for the Jews in the south to buy provisions and to be ready for the famine. How can that happen? It is because the hand of the Lord. It is because the church is the grace of of God. It is not something political. It is not something social. It is not like a club. It is not earthly. It is heavenly. It's the hand of the Lord. And this is, this is the only thing that will help you and me understand um, what it means to be a Christian. We are never a Christian primarily because of our own decision to become a Christian. Or because we look at the doctrines of the Bible and it says, I believe and I I decide that they're true. I, I take them as true and I will profess them as true. Those things are all important. They all have their place. But it is not our our making these decisions that make us a Christian. It is the hand of the Lord. It is the grace of God. Um The pastor Derek Thomas says this, The salvation of a sinner is the accomplishment of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutually working together in a bond of love and sovereign commitment to do that which none of us have the power to do. And that's what was happening in the church. And just a word about the grace of God. Not only does that show it is the work of God, The hand of the Lord shows that, that what was happening, it was God working. The grace of God shows it is God working. But the word grace adds one more detail. It adds the detail that he's doing this work to people who don't deserve him to do this work. You just have to take what happened to Apostle Paul. He he is on the way to Damascus to put Christians in jail. So he doesn't deserve to be saved. He doesn't deserve to be converted. He's not even wanting to be converted. But he's on the way and the Lord Jesus stops him. And he falls and remember he sees that great light. And and, and he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says, "Who, who art thou, Lord? And then he says, I'm Jesus whom thou hast been persecuting. And, and so you see, Paul didn't deserve that. He, he, he was not even seeking after Christ. He was seeking after Christians to put them to death if they didn't recant. But it's the grace of God. And that's the whole idea. Beloved, if in your heart goes, you know, I really, I don't think I could ever be a Christian because I don't deserve. You have to at that very moment understand that's the qualification, as it were, for someone to be a Christian. Because God doesn't save people who deserve to be saved. There are no such categories. The thing is that some of us are maybe living a more moral life, and so we have the mindset that maybe there's a a dignity and a worthiness, but no, it is always God's grace. And that's why the salvation of Paul is so critical because it really shows the reality of every single one of us. We're we're not all of us persecutors like Saul were, but we're all of us unworthy like Saul was. And so when God saves you, it's His grace bringing you to be His follower because He loves you, because He chooses you. You don't deserve it, but He loves you anyway. It's His grace. And so just in closing, a couple couple principles and lessons that, that we learn and we should take to heart. We're learning the truth that the body of Christ is one. 
that, that the church is the body of Christ and that it is one. Um, this is even explaining the word Christian. Jesus is our head and we are his body. And along with Jesus, we are one. Whether you're Gentile or Jew, Samaritan, Phoenician, Cyprus, from Antioch, in those days, these were all different places. And it would be, like in our minds, a, a Canadian, an European, a Frenchman, an African, an Australian. It doesn't matter. Whoever of these groups of people look to the Lord Jesus and says, I believe in Christ, and you, and you turn unto the Lord, you become a Christian. And as a Christian, we are one. And we see the very church being this picture of Christ. They hear of a famine. You would think they would hoard everything for themselves. Remember the problem during the pandemic, how people were hoarding. The church wasn't doing that. They were saying, let's get things and send it to those who need it more. They were being sacrificial. They were thinking of others. That's who Jesus is. He came to earth to die, to save sinners. Then a second thought is, is how we see um, in, in all of these um, narratives the reality how the leadership of the body of Christ is involved. God is operating. Everyone is doing something. And the leadership is very involved in, in evangelizing and in communicating in communing and sharing. Agabus goes there, uh, probably sent by the Spirit because they needed to know this because that's how the Lord would help the brothers and sisters in the south. So Agabus is, is serving. Philip is serving. Peter is serving. He's in jail. Often he will soon be in jail again as we keep reading. Um, Philip, um, um, Ananias, remember, he, he had the dangerous task to be the first one to go to Saul. He was scared to do it, but the Lord encouraged him, and he, and he went. It was a sacrifice, but he obeyed. And now we read of Barnabas, and we see his, his selflessness, how he doesn't mind that Saul will take, as it were, the priority in the main place, and he wants to do it. We see the leadership as a servant leadership of this church that is one. So the leaders understand we, we need to be like Jesus. Jesus gave his life for the church. So Barnabas, you see him giving his life. You see Saul giving his life. Philip is like giving his life. Agabus is giving his life. These leaders and the church is sacrificing as well. They hear of a famine. They give of their sustenance of what they have. You just see Christ everywhere. And this is what's so precious, beloved. We're in the book of Acts this is not one of the Gospels. But again, you find yourself thinking you'll see Jesus at one of these par paragraphs. You, maybe one of the parables of Jesus will come again. No, it won't because Jesus' ministry is, is over here on earth, but it's not over because His people are in essence like Jesus here on earth. And here and there we see even miracles still happening. And this is the passage where we find that Christians are called I mean that believers are called Christians. Finally, we, we, we see Christ in Barnabas' humility. We, we see and will see much of Christ in Paul's zeal. We see Christ in Agabus' foreknowledge. And we see Christ in, in this sacrificial love of the church where they give... Um, According to his ability, they determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwell in Judea. And beloved, aren't we thankful that we serve a Savior that according to his ability, he determined to send relief unto the brethren who dwelt in the world. What was the ability of Christ? To save sinners. What was the determination of Christ? To come for sinners. What was the relief that he sent to his brethren? It was him as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. And when you believe in Jesus and trust in him, 
you are believing in one who gave himself for you. And if you truly believe him and you're truly his, you will want to be like him and be a Christian. And may the Lord bless every heart. If you're a true believer, you are a work of the hand of the Lord. It is the grace of God that worked in your life. If you're not a believer yet, it is the hand of the Lord you need and the grace of God now in your heart. And Christ is the one to trust and to believe and to turn to and pray for the strength and for the help and for the faith. And let us, beloved, be a church as we here we're supposed to be, as one who would cleave unto the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for this small narrative, only a few verses, and yet we see, Lord, so much. We see the love of Thy people. We see the insight and sacrifice of church leaders. We see, Lord, evidences of Thy work and of Thy grace. Lord, help us to fathom the reality that these are people in exile and yet they are like itinerant missionaries and people are believing and the church is growing. Help us then, Lord, in our times of peace. We, we can stay in the comfort of our homes. We are not having to flee. But help us, Lord, with all our heart, with all our love, to reach our loved ones, to let them know that there is a Savior who, who loves sinners, who gave himself for them, who is a living sacrifice, who will turn them into a living sacrifice um, to serve our Lord and Savior. We pray, O oh Lord, help us to be a true, true church of the Lord Jesus that thy hand would be seen in our lives. And we thank thee for thy grace. And forgive us, Lord, for all our sins. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.